psychological safety is a fundamental element of team success for sure and and coaching leaders because without psychological safety, which is essential for honest and open dialogue, for acceptance and respect across the table, you really can't have a fully functioning team. And so the notion of psychological safety is really table stakes for success, quite frankly. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest in this episode is Steve Schloss. He's currently the Chief People Officer for the United States Golf Association. But Steve has been involved in many different industries, from finance to tech to media, and of course, sports. And for Steve, regardless of the industry, there's one thing that everyone can get on board with, and that's coaching. Steve is a coach himself and understands what a good coach is and how much value it can bring to a person or an organization. So with that, let's dive right in. Steve Schloss, welcome to the show. I uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time to make today happen. Adam, really thrilled to be here today. (laughs) All right, good. We're going to have some fun. I think you've got a really interesting story. I like your background and I like your disposition. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting uh, under the hood, if you will, of that experience and just having some fun. Before we get rolling, would you mind giving a brief synopsis of kind of who you are and what you're doing? Well, being under the hood, just wanted to know my father was in the car business, so I appreciate the, the connection there. Great way to start this conversation. Uh, so I've been a senior HR executive for many years, uh, the last 10, 12 years as a chief HR officer, chief people officer, but for the last 35 years have been involved in building and scaling and transforming and evolving organizations across a multitude of industries, primarily in financial services, media and publishing, high growth technology, and currently nonprofit and sports. And love it, love the journey, as well as have had the chance to be a professor, a graduate professor in New York City on an adjunct basis for a dozen years, and also do some side coaching and mentorship and just enjoy also giving back and leveraging the benefit of my experience to help others. That's great. Now, did you know that you've jumped industries and typically not easy to do? How were you able to, to make that happen? It's an interesting question. I would say that the one thing that I learned to do was to unlearn 
the things that might have made me successful in one environment and learn the things that require me to be successful in the new environment and bring with it from the past experience the things that maybe transcend all environments. And so uh, an example would be I worked at Citibank for a little over 10 years, and then I joined Time Warner, where I spent about 13 years. And in one way, I went from a very left-brain, process-oriented environment to a right-brain, creative environment. And the difference between the two was that at Citibank, it was a very grinding global experience that taught me so much. But what I learned at Time Inc., specifically was the art of diplomacy and working across multitudes of brands and personalities in the creative space that I never came across in the financial space. Wow. Now, great perspective, but how does one unlearn? I've not heard somebody say that before. So is that something someone taught you to do? Is it something that you just kind of picked up on yourself? Books out there that you've read? Give, Give us the secret sauce. I think it's just more of a personality trait and a style where, as a person, I'm a very intentional learner. I was raised to be a learner by parents who, via their own experiences, impressed upon my sister and I the importance of knowledge and learning. And so in some ways, being consciously aware of the world around me and being mindful of where I'm going or where I was is recognizing that there are just some things that fit the environment that you're in that you need to become comfortable enough to put aside and say, you know what, this skill set, this ability to be very process driven will be helpful to me going forward. But I really need to tone that down because in this new environment, the ability to be more kind of ability to move a process along, but involve many others and converge towards an outcome versus heading down a straight path requires you to learn how to pivot. And it's something that maybe unconsciously I just had the skill set I didn't know I had, but I enjoyed and embraced it enough that made going from one industry to another less difficult for me. So that's really interesting. And that skill set that you have that's put you to where you are is actually a skill set that's going to be needed more so than ever as we kind of move forward with the, as a result of kind of just technology and just the way that things are changing. Like what you're describing, Steve, is a high EQ. And it sounds like, yeah, you might have been gifted coming out of the gate with that, but it's something that you've definitely learned, been aware of, and you've developed. What kind of advice would you give to others? And I guess, do you agree with me in terms of how important that skill set's going to be needed for the future? I think it has always been an important skill set, and you're right, it becomes an even more important skill set for the future. The advice I would give is this. I was clearly not challenged early in my career enough to really understand what I just said to you. (laughs) Because I just, I didn't know what I didn't know. And the moment that this really happened for me, which is very clear, is at a meeting as part of a team I was at at City at the time, and I raised an idea to my boss. And essentially the idea was to create this, what we called Global Connection Conference that brought leaders together that were new to the organization. Now, mind you, the organization was huge, 
very decentralized. And this was intended to be a regional experience where we brought all these leaders together, hear from the CEO, very common concept in terms of having a reason for people to get together. But for me at age 26, 27, 28, around that time, I presented this idea and my boss looked at me and goes, you know what? I really love the idea. Why don't you go run with it? Mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking to myself, what is next? Because this first conference that we were going to put on was going to be in Europe. And I ended up scouting a site in Antwerp in Belgium. And that was a moment where I realized I needed to live up to the risk that I put out there by being comfortable enough to put it out there and to turn it into an opportunity. And it immediately put me in a position where I was now accountable for everything that I raised in a simple sentence, and I had to find a way to make it happen. And the most important thing that I realized instantaneously was that I did not have all the answers. I clearly was not the expert, and I needed to find a partner or partners to help me which I did find out of our UK-based operation. And that began the journey. And I think it, what it did for me, it, it built a level of confidence that I used to help me from there. Mm, that confidence is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And But it's the confidence to know that you can do something and achieve it. It's not arrogance. It's mm. mission that, you know what, I, I can do this and I can continue to ask for more or pursue this because... I overcame something which maybe was my own fear to take the risk and and had a very successful conference. And then uh, we kind of built it from there. Did you feel like that was your uh, takeoff point for your career? I think it was a takeoff point for my professional uh, success, yes, because it taught me some things very early on in a more complex business environment in an international financial services organization. That was really my first true major corporate kind of experience. So yes, I would point to that. Excellent. So I'd like to let everybody in more on kind of you and your personality. You ready for some rapid fire questions? Yes. (laughs) Good stuff. Would you consider yourself an an introvert, an extrovert, or kind of somewhere in the middle, centrovert, ambivert? I'd put myself as an ambivert, but I I would say if I would really have to make an introvert, extrovert uh, choice, I'm probably a little more introverted than extroverted. Interesting. And always the case, or has that changed over time? I think I've become much more ambiverted over time, and I know how to use my extroversion capability when I need to, but I think I'm very comfortable being a little more introverted. And over time, it's just as an adult, you learn how to use it. And you actually bring up a, a great point about how you learn how to do that. Is there anything in particular that you've done to be able to utilize more of that introvert, extrovert? Because there are a lot of people that really struggle with this. So it's one of the reasons that I ask that question. It's a staple question that I ask a lot of people that come on the show because I want everybody out there to learn, to hear about what it is that you've done to be able to kind of straddle this line. I think the experience of growing up and being essentially introverted forced me to learn how to listen really well. And over the years, I've developed my listening skills in ways that I think I'm extremely effective at it. And once you learn how to listen and process and engage in group discussion, as an example, and I'm at the table amongst my colleagues, you learn how to, over time, as you have 
moments of success or failure and you achieve things to understand that, first of all, understand who you are and be proud of it and not try to force yourself into being someone who you're not because you think that's going to get you from point A to point B. I think there are times where you might find that if you're sitting around an executive table, there are people that are trying to come across as being extroverted because they feel they need to. And they're probably just very uncomfortable being that versus allowing themselves to be who they are. And so for me, it's being comfortable with who I am and then realizing on the other side of this, where I learned to be more extroverted was forcing myself to get up in front of groups and speak. And I think once I learned how to do that better, it allowed me to be more confident to kind of navigate both ends of that continuum. That's an excellent answer. Extremely insightful and something that I do hope that other people take away from. Again, your point about owning who you are and being authentic, that will shine through. And I think a lot of people make a mistake of, like you said, trying to be something that they're not. And uh, they might think that they're doing a good job of it, but it's very apparent. <laughs> so thank you for that, the, sure. the honesty in that answer too. Tell me a habit that you have, good, bad, or indifferent. I would say that I am a digital pack rat. In real life, I am just super organized. I'm a child of German parents who fit the stereotype in every way possible around being organized. So I'm also very minimalist with my stuff. But I am super obsessed related to the learning process about just capturing information, knowledge, photos, things. So on my, one of my personal email inboxes, I have tons of folders that are spaces for me to collect things and to maybe use it at some other point versus my house, which is very neat. And the spaces that I use for myself professionally are very minimal because I've figured out what I need and what I don't. And so for me, I'm kind of a digital pack rat versus a real life pack rat. And that's a bit of a habit that on a daily basis, if there's something interesting, I'm automatically sending it to myself. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty organized that way too. And that is something that I have noticed as is as as something consistent within the field of HR. I'm curious, I don't know if I have enough data points on this yet, but I'm seeing a clear trend in that space. Is that something that you've noticed? Or am I just out here on uh, out in a wing here? In terms of gathering information? No, uh, just, just the, the lists, organizational skills. I know. I, mean, I think it's unique to the person that everybody likes to constantly catch up and gather information and data. That's just kind of who I am. But I do think that the driver of that for me has more to do with just being really big on context and having awareness of the world around me. And so anytime I read something that's interesting or learn something from someone or maybe even watch something that I want to hold on to it so that maybe it has value at some future point. And so that's really the driver for me. Excellent. I do the exact same thing. Tell me something that most people don't know about you. Funny thing, the other night I was watching the movie High Fidelity mm -hmm. with John Cusack. And my friends and I growing up were those characters from the movie. <laughs> um, we were massive music collectors, listeners, concert goers. And we had a whole process where we used to buy music and we had a whole kind of experience. And so between my multiple thousands of LPs and tapes and CDs, just this massively eclectic music collection, which two years ago, I parted with 90% of my LPs and sold them all off. 
and kept maybe 200 and my turntable, which I still kept from 40 years ago, which I reassembled and cleaned and started using again. But that character with that movie just is such a great reflection on my youth. And so that's something that people may not know about me. That's so cool. I'm a music guy also. I actually used to DJ. And it makes me really sad to hear that you parted with your records because they're actually making, there's a huge resurgence that's happening in the music field in terms of they're arguing that you cannot ever replicate the sound quality of a record. Yeah, I've heard that so many times. And I don't know, for me, it was a moment where I just thought it was time to move on. And I'm such a a music listener and collector, even digitally, that for me, it wasn't that difficult. I will say that being kind of a minimalist, organized guy, I remember calling one of the record stores where I wanted to provide them all the records to review and buy. And I said, was seriously a collector. All my records are in jackets. The records themselves are in sleeves and they're super neat. And the guy says, look, I hear that all the time. And so I brought my stuff over there and I dropped it off. And he said, I need about three hours because you have a lot here. And I came back and he goes, so first of all, you're right. You really are in that 2%. (laughs) People took their record collection a little too seriously. And the value of your records are far greater than normally because they're in pristine condition. And he said, are you sure you want to do this? I said, yeah, it's time to move on. Uh, That's cool that he was that honest with you. (laughs) So to transition back to the professional side, you touched on something that's very hot these days and I think is only going to grow. And that's coaching. You mentioned that you do some coaching. First and foremost, would you mind kind of giving, because the term gets thrown around a lot. I would love to get your definition of what coaching is. And then I'd also like to understand what you think makes a good coach. Uh, Sure. Um, So obviously there's coaching individuals and coaching teams. So let me start by answering the first question, the last question first, which is what makes a good coach? I would say that a good coach is someone who helps and supports a person or a team to learn new skills and get better at what they're doing over time. I think simply put, that's what I would say it is. And coaching and good coaching is more likely going to be contextual and that it helps, let's say, a leader focus on or achieve improved performance or behavior based on the context of the organization or the situation. I think without context, coaching is not really effective. And that goes to maybe the team coaching side. I think a lot of times when you hear the concept of team coaching, which is more recent as a concept and a skill, oftentimes that might be perceived as, well, a a team or a group is an amalgam of personalities and styles, which is absolutely true. But I look at team coaching more as a process as opposed to a personality issue. And it's a process to help a group that may be connected or not become more effective over time. So just some subtle differences between the two. Mm. And why do you think it's in such demand these days? Because it is. I can tell you firsthand, I work with a lot of large organizations and there are a lot of people that say they're coaches, but there's a very small amount of quality coaches that are out there. And there's just a big demand. I've had a lot of clients that have asked if I know other coaches. It's an interesting question. When I was running 
talent management at uh, Time Inc. I had uh, built a corporate university, and this is maybe 15 years ago. And at the time, one of the things that I did even 15 years ago was evaluate our coaching approach and methodology. And at the time, relative to where we are today, coaching was in some ways defined as more of an elite reward for being a leader in an organization. And the people that were successful in coaching, some of them really good, some of them, uh, I would say, coach with a small C versus a capital C. And for the most part, many of them really did not have net effect or impact on performance overall. And uh, mm. realized at that time that there has to be a better way. There has to be more of a systemic, organized approach to this process. And I stopped the coaching efforts and really focused on two or three coaches that I felt were the high impact coaches. And part of it was in all cases, they were very contextual in approach and they, I think they recognized that the role they played was to help drive business success through the individual that they were coaching. But the approach that I found that fit me was helpful. But I would say that coaching as a practice in an industry has evolved in ways that I think recognize a couple of things. One is we're kind of beginning to see the democratization of coaching. There are platforms like GoCoach that make the idea of coaching available and scalable for everyone in the new world. And while I can't speak to the overall efficacy of what it is that happens on the platform, the fact is it becomes available to more people at a more um, reasonable price point for companies to invest in. So I think the availability of the process is helpful, but why is it even there? I think part of it is the rate, the pace, the demands of change, the generational transitions of leadership that are happening around us, and the need for help as these leaders in the new way of business are navigating the challenges. And so I think the dependence generationally has shifted such where the need for help and the availability of help is more expected than it might have been sought after for the generation before. Even coaching for some people might be a bit of a crutch. I think it's something that has grown because of that. And at the same time, coaching as a behavior for leaders has grown concurrently and exponentially, I think, because the, the two concepts have merged together. And I'd say the last thing, which is something that I'm a big believer in, Tom Friedman wrote a great book called Thank You for Being Late. And the book is based on the notion that there's this rapid acceleration of change um, and this exponential increase in computing power and our ability to keep up and cope with the gap that's occurring because humans can't possibly keep up with the change that's surrounding them. And so that gap creates all of this angst and anxiety. And how do we, as leaders, as examples, deal with that? And what part of it is coaching ideally should help someone become more agile as they manage through the changes going forward. And so I see that kind of environment happening around us and people needing help to help them figure things out. Interesting. And do you think that anything like years back, the egos of some of the executives might not have welcomed the idea of a coach where now it's a little more in vogue? Do you think there's anything there? I think the coaching, let's say 15 years ago, tended to be very elite in its positioning because essentially it was 360 based 
it was maybe in some cases, my experience had been, it was bordering on psychological coaching as opposed to performance coaching. Uh, good point. And so I think over time, and, and by the way, not everyone should be doing psychological coaching, particularly if they're not <laughs> trained and certified to do so by any stretch. But I think as you see more people getting into the coaching profession and organizations in the business of certifying, you do have to begin to ask yourself, what is coaching going to look like in the future? And to move from something that was special and unique to something that's democratized, what is coaching as a concept, as a behavior, as a service, I think will evolve as people begin to realize and understand its importance. But also, I think what success looked like for coaching 15 years ago might look different uh, 15 years from now. Yeah, yeah, good point. And then, and then how would you define the difference between that individual versus team coaching? So individual coaching is how I am trying to improve a performance or a behavior to help me do better at what I do and those that are around me that I might affect and also help me understand inside what this means. Team coaching, I think, is a very different concept. Personally, I've had many years of leading and facilitating and coaching teams inside organizations. One of the best ways to describe what the difference is, is the work that was done and is done by Ruth Wagerman and Richard Hackman, who did work around extremely research-based work around team performance and coaching. And there was a model created called the Six Conditions And the six conditions focus on the key elements and neighbors of team performance over time. And this is a very research-based process that looks at hundreds of organizations. And this looks at really 80% of successive organizational teams can be essentially understood through these six conditions. And I'm a big believer in that because it removes personality and style and focus is on the design, the construct, kind of the input, the the flow through and the output of a team. And they look at it through the factors of team purpose, team focus, the flow of the team, the the structural context of the team, the support elements of the team results and ultimately the accountability of the team. And that as opposed to the purely interpersonal side. And so there are huge differences clearly, but in the end, to me, it's more of a process approach a research-based approach, uh, which to me personally kind of is a personal satisfaction approach the way I look at coaching. Mm. And now these six things that you're referencing, is this kind of, it can work for every type of team or there are only certain types of teams or businesses that this might apply to? It's a great question. In their case, the research was across teams of all types across all industries on a global basis. They wrote a famous book called Senior Leadership Teams which describes the concept in more detail. And there's other works surrounding uh, both of them. And really, in the end, it is a concept that, while arguably senior leadership teams are very much a focus, teams of all types, from teams that have short lifespans, they point to teams that might be going into an operating room, to a flight crew, to technology teams, the lifespan, their approach, the intent, they share certain common elements. And so these cut across all of those examples. 
Wow. It sounds like a great book. Who would you recommend read this book? I would say anybody who wants to understand what it takes for teams to be successful of any types, whether you are a business executive or a coach, strongly recommend the book. Interesting. Now, are you familiar with Project Oxygen? And if so, do you have any thoughts on that, on the importance of psychological safety as it pertains to, I guess, teams and just in general coaching leaders? That's the Google work? Yes. Okay. So psychological safety is a fundamental element of team success for sure and and coaching leaders because without psychological safety, which is essential for honest and open dialogue, for acceptance and respect across the table, you really can't have a fully functioning team. And so the notion of psychological safety is really table stakes for success, quite frankly. Yeah. And yeah, to me, it's about, again, that being able to feel comfortable in order to be comfortable, to have trust. And I've got to assume trust is pretty high in the food chain when it comes to being a leader. What's the best advice someone ever gave you? The best advice I think will be described in a decision that a person made about me. I had a mentor who was a business leader, who was my boss at the time, who took me out to lunch And he explained to me that he's taking me out of my job and he's putting me into a special assignment, which was a high impact assignment while things were going really well for me in my job. And I didn't know what to say. The lesson that he shared with me very simply, Steve, he said to me was, if you can't get comfortable being uncomfortable, there's no chance you're going to be successful as an executive. And I need to shake you out of your complacency right now because you're, you're doing really well, but I see you've lost your edge and I see potential for you, but I need to give you this opportunity to take a bit of a left turn. You may not like the project I'm about to give to you, but you understand why I'm giving it to you. And this was maybe... Oh my God, 25 years ago. And what he did was he put me into a role where I was part of a small group as part of a major cross organizational initiative to transform a particular element of how we served the Citibank customer. And I was an individual contributor after managing a team. But what I was asked to do and participate in was transformative because there were skills that clearly I didn't have, that clearly I didn't realize I didn't have. And he shook me in a way that I thank him every day because he forced me to realize that complacency is an enemy to your ability to succeed. Oh, that's a great quote. I love that. And what excellent advice. I clearly kind of shot you off. That's around the time that we talked about the trajectory of your career. So exactly. uh, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and speaking of quotes, I'm a big quote guy and we're running low here on time. I got one last question for you and uh, I'd love to get your perspective on a quote that I'm going to read to you and I want to know what your thoughts are, or just what it means to you. Are you ready? Okay. In business, trust is the real currency and relationships are the economic driver. In business, trust is the real currency and relationships are the economic driver. Two points that come to mind. One is trust and leadership, especially in today's world, is so important. 
and yet it seems in short supply. And while relationships always matter, they certainly cannot exist without trust. But you could argue that meaningful relationships are in fact the real currency and that through that, you do develop trust, which does inspire action and ultimately momentum. That's good. That's good. Oh, I don't know. So what we do for our guests for coming on the show is we create a quote card. And I got to tell you, we're going to have some challenges because you got some meaningful nuggets that you shared with us today, Steve. (laughs) Yeah. So what question would you have asked if you were the host? Well, if I was going to start the podcast by getting to know the person personally, I had Two definite questions. One very quickly was wine, beer, tequila, or vodka? <laughs> All right. What's, and what's the answer? I'll, I'll go with the wine and tequila option. Okay. Uh, right. Red or white? Red. Okay. Pinot Noir. And the other might have been uh, Homeland, Game of Thrones, or Breaking Bad. Ooh. And okay. And which one? Definitely either Breaking Bad or Homeland. I was never a Game of Thrones fan. Yeah, Yeah, I'm with you on Breaking Bad, a top three of all time. Definitely. Hey, I really appreciate you uh, carving out this time today. I've had a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I've written down a bunch of books and things that I need to start reading up on. I just appreciate everything that you've done and shared with us today. I appreciate it, Adam. Enjoyed it greatly. And uh, if there's anything you need or if anybody who listens to this wants to connect, feel free to do so on LinkedIn. Oh, that's great. I I definitely appreciate you offering that to those. And anyone who is listening, I would encourage you to do so. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Adam. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to networkwise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, Subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise. Network